welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford, and joining me is my lovely co-host, dumpster raccoon, pop culture critic, and doctor. <laughs> Anthony Alvera, hello. I love when you call me lovely when I'm fully, like, unshowered in my pajama pants, full quarantine energy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Anthony, I have to compliment my podcast husband, whether oh. you like it or not. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Ian. And we are joined today by uh, writer of Marvel's X Factor. Leah Williams. Hello, Leah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. And we also have of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men and the upcoming X-Men Marvel Snapshot on sale September 16th. Jay Editin. Jay Editin. We have like literal X-Men podcast royalty with us today and X-Men writing royalty. It's a we are massively outshone on this one, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all three of you have written for Marvel Comics, so I feel out. I'm like, mm. <laughs> I have my podcast. <laughs> um, and we are talking about the Dark Phoenix saga, the X-Men, like really the high. Is this the high point? I think this is the high point of the series. It was when I was a kid. Of the cartoon I, or the comic? The, well, both, I guess. What do, you, what, do you have a difference of opinion on either of those? I feel like, is there a better episode of the series? There are episodes of the series I like more. I don't know if there are episodes that are better. I feel like this is the most faithful, like the most like we're going to hit every beat of this classic story episode, right? Like I feel like a lot of my favorite episodes of the cartoon are my favorite because they're doing something new that the, sh the comic never did. Whereas this one is like thinking very rigorously about like we owe this story a lot and let's pay it as much homage as we can. Yes and no, because it's also a fairly faithful adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga where nobody dies. Right. And there's the a lot of ways that they manage <laughs> to engineer those changes and make that work is deft enough that it, it it feels like saying that it's just a rehash of the the comic feels like not not even getting giving it enough credit because it does a very, very good job making one of the less Saturday morning appropriate X-Men arcs work in this format. And that's tough to pull off and still have the emotional beat land. And I think that that's kind of the amazing thing of it. Like, it still feels grandiose, even though people keep popping back up like five frames later. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 think I said this before we recorded, and I think I might have said this on our night, in the, our night of the Sentinels episode, Anthony, but I always gauge it on like how much I loved it by if I played it a lot with my action figures, if I tried to like recreate the plot. And oh boy, did I always try to do Dark Phoenix Saga. And I loved that in the cartoon, I actually like the cast better in the cartoon. Like, I, I think Rogue and Gambit add a lot more charm um, than we get from, like, Colossus and Nightcrawler in the comic. Not that I don't love those characters, because I do love them. I just, I think we needed someone a little bit more quippier and someone who might crack jokes. And Rogue is, you know, constantly with her Dolly Parton accent, like, saying really ridiculous things. And I think that adds to it and makes it a little bit more fun. I don't know. I that was actually one of the notes that I made during this watch through um, more recently about Rogue and Gambit specifically. I feel like I never appreciated them uh, when I first saw this cartoon, but now I'm like, wow, they're the best. <laughs> <laughs> now, did everybody? So I. I'm like born in 84. So I knew growing up, it's hard to now reconstitute what it was like. Cause like you would read the comics and you would watch the cartoon, but if you hadn't read the original story, there wasn't as, it wasn't as easy to find as it is now. So I like knew about the dark Phoenix as an event, but this was actually the first time I saw it. Was that everyone else's experience or. 
I think this was my first exposure to X-Men ever at all. Really? Yeah. You came, you came to X-Men through the cartoon? Well, I didn't grow up with comics. I, like Rogue, grew up in Mississippi where I'm from Oxford, Mississippi. Um, so I, there were like Betty and Jughead digests at right. Fred, no, James's Food Center, the one grocery store in town. Um, but other than that, we didn't have like X-Men comics or anything, but on like really, really early mornings, this old X-Men cartoon would be in syndication and I could watch it on TV before school. Um, and so that was my first exposure to X-Men. My experience was the exact opposite. Um, <laughs> I I have I have literally only watched the X-Men cartoon on streaming sites, which wow. dates my experience with it. I, I grew up um, pretty much in a pop culture vacuum in a lot of ways. And I, I read the comics for the first time in college, and I didn't watch the cartoon at all till my 30s. Wow. How were you? Were you reading back issues in college? Is that what was I was. Like? So Miles and I have known each other since we were in like sixth grade, since we were 11 or 12. And in college, halfway through, he brought up his whole old collection and his dad's whole old collection. And I basically spent a summer going through all of them. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So, see, I have the... I have the problem where to this day I still have to spend time untangling what was the cartoon and what was the comic, like <laughs> including with the Dark Phoenix stuff, where it's like, wait, um, Rogue wasn't there, like <laughs> basic stuff like that. I have to constantly do because this is like this cartoon put such a crater in my brain as a kid that like is still there. Yeah, Anthony, that's funny. I was gonna say I. I had trouble finding, but I eventually found it this morning, my copy of the Dark Phoenix um, graphic novel. And I was like, let me breeze through this because I'm not sure I'm remembering the differences correctly. <laughs> Good <laughs> like, luck breezing through a Chris Claremont comic, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck breezing through anything involving Dark Phoenix. One of my notes that I made uh, for this podcast was like, I hope I'm not the only one who's always confused about Dark Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> well, among the people confused about Dark Phoenix, though, is Chris Claremont, right? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> the status of this entity changes a few times um, along the history of the sh of the comic, right? Uh, which I guess you know is what? by design. We eventually have to forgive Jean for some sins she doesn't really commit in this cartoon. Uh, well, and in, in this arc, though, he was, I think, pretty clear, at least around it that it was it was pretty much about sexuality that the, the dark phoenix is is just orgasms but maybe that's a good place to start is like what <laughs> what is this story really about like as a as at a thematic level i always because this is a recurring kind of structure in comics right like we have this same kind of story with the scarlet witch we have this story with gene like the woman who has like lost control of her power and it becomes this like apocalyptic event. Is it really just a fear of female sexuality? I mean, I think and anger, because those are the two things you see in Dark Phoenix. And this is this is actually it's I think more explicit in the cartoon than I remember it even being in the comics because they're going on and on and on and on about how the Phoenix is just sensation seeking. Yeah. Yeah, that really hits hard. And then she's she's not quite she never strikes me as like horny, <laughs> but she is like right. about feelings, right? Is that about feelings and specifically about the feelings that go with having a body. Embodiedness. Yeah, that's a good way to yeah, think. Yeah, because she, she, again, she just, you, and again, this isn't in the cartoon. In the cartoon, it's mostly about cosmic scale and consuming and amorality. 
But in this, in this, they 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 go back over and over and over again to the fact that it's about sensations and it's about the fact that she's got a human body. Hmm. You know, the thing that the thing I I don't know if you all, Anthony, I don't know if you remember when we when it aired because so. I don't know what the order is. I know the the episode order is incorrect on Disney Plus, and I know that it was aired incorrectly. But I can remember when it aired being like, wait a minute, Jean Grey is dead. Mm. Why is she with Moira? Yeah. And I know, right? Like This is because, so we talked in the Night of the Sentinels episode about the iffiness of the animation. <laughs> uh, the animation studio that's doing the X-Men cartoon is Acom, who are sort of famously... Like even something like Batman, the animated series, whenever they entrusted Acom to do an episode, it's always the episode that they talk about that the animation came back so bad they had to compensate with the music. Um, so Acom was late to deliver the pieces before the Dark Phoenix saga. So so if you were a kid and you were watching this live, you did not know why Jean was back. It actually kind of works for me, this opening with Muir Island, that Jean is just suddenly back and then we recap it later in the story. Um, Moira, the, yeah, there, it's there's no previously on X Men bit before this, which is weird because it feels like there needs to be. But Moira does a good job of like giving a quick recap, and then Emma Frost in her entry gives a complete recap, and it's like, all right, sure, like, <laughs> yeah, it does seem to be thinking about itself as sort of a mini movie. It doesn't want you to have to have seen much before this. Um, I I was wondering what you all thought. I was like. I was trying to, I was actually trying to find what the correct order was supposed to be, but I couldn't actually find someone like every website that said it was a correct order was different. Um, but I did, um, wanted to see what you all thought. Like I found an article that said the biggest flaw of this was that we didn't get months of mastermind getting into Jean's mind. It's just kind of like this episode, he's right in her mind and then we're there. Um, but I actually, what you said, Anthony is how I feel about it. It's contained almost as a mini movie. So I feel like I'm cool with it not being like, oh, in the five previous episodes, Mastermind had been like mentioned or like been going into her mind. Like I, I didn't need that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I watched this or rewatched it as a grown up um, on Disney Plus. So it did give like maybe it's a new thing that they added a recap of everything with Lalandra and the crystal and all of that. In addition to like, the way Moira and Emma recap it too. Um, so I think that not having as much of the mastermind stuff seated before then um, was was okay with me too, just because by by the end of three recaps, I was like, yes, okay, let's go. <laughs> Ready. Let's fuck shit up. Let's go. <laughs> I, I like this version of mastermind a lot. Um, I, I think like, obviously not as a person, but... <laughs> <laughs> but like this kind of, as Jay was saying, this sort of like question of embodiment as a way to sort of um, access Jean thinking about sexuality and like a darker version of sexuality. The idea of the Hellfire Club, which they're never called here because it's a cartoon. No, they're, they're the Circle Club specifically, <laughs> and I, I, they, and they, they, they do the like old stone plaque on the building, but its logo makes it look like it's an ancient secret Victorian record of the month club. Right. <laughs> which, I mean, these clubs, which are real, like Hellfire Clubs do exist historically and presently. Um, but these like LARPers, like these sex clubs where you also have to pretend there's something like cool and like powerful about what you're doing are so dorky to me. And I love that the cartoon really leans into the dorkiness of like the powder <laughs> wigs and everything. Jay, it was you, wasn't it? I was like, someone on one of our previous X-Men episodes pointed out that they're not the Hellfire Club, but yet Emma is still in her bondage year. That was you, wasn't it, Jay? 
May, I, I know I was complaining about about her her clothing or just going on a, a long Emma's corsets never fit right rant in context of the generation <laughs> Generation X made for TV. Oh yeah, movies, her nipples been been out. Yeah. Um, for people who don't know, the Hellfire Club because Claremont always does this. He doesn't have an original idea. He loves stealing other people's ideas. Like I mean, that is a compliment. <laughs> but the Hellfire Club are very specifically a reference to this old Avengers episode called A Touch of Brimstone, where Emma Peel, the one of the main characters of the Avengers, is seduced by this creepy sex club into like accessing her darker sexuality. And her, her outfit in is actually like one-to-one the Black Queen's outfit here. Um, and actually all of the Hellfire Club members are direct references to the episode and to act, famous actors. So Jason Weingard is actually Peter Weingard, who plays a character named Jason King, Emma Frost is obviously Emma Peel. Donald Pierce is clearly supposed to be a reference to Donald Sutherland, who played Hawkeye Pierce. Um, And Harry Leland is Orson Welles, uh, Harry Lime, and I forget the Leland character he played. Um, So a little little trivia (laughs) for people. (laughs) Again, neither the comic nor the cartoon get into the, the sexuality aspect of it, really. I don't know what kids thought was going on in the Hellfire Club. Yeah, there are weirdly chaste set of bondage LARPers in the comic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in my in my head as a kid, uh, I think I just thought like, I don't know, Psylocke wore a bikini. You're just like, oh yeah, that's just what these characters are. Like, I didn't even equate it to like, I, I don't know. Because I, I, in one of our X-Men episodes, I said I got in trouble for drawing Psylocke in fifth grade um, because I think I drew like Psylocke and Emma Frost actually. And the teacher thought I was like, drawing drawing pornographic, yeah like pornographic ladies but i was just drawing like two ladies in the comics that i had read that i really liked and i always think of that with them so i don't think in my brain i ever made the connection like oh this is supposed to be like hot and sexy it's just like oh that's that's the outfit they're wearing because i was you know very gay child so (laughs) well and also they if you're if you're coming from the superhero costumes as a perspective they're not more risque like you're absolutely right there's as yeah. much skin covered it's just that there's some some of it has lacing drawn over it yeah <laughs> and i guess structurally the episode also like occludes the weirdness of their outfits because we keep flashing back to the 18th century the weird visions that mastermind is giving her are like yeah. historical where she seems to be she seems to think she's some kind of british loyalist during the revolution <laughs> I am very glad they cut out the like storm aspect of that though. Oh, that boy. Yeah. 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 I, when I was watching this, I, another, another like time where it's like, I couldn't remember. I was like, is that in the cartoon? I hope it's not. And then I was like, Oh good. That's just in the comic. It's not in the cartoon. Cause ugh, that is not great. They also but, cut all the wine. Like I love that. Um, they seem to be drinking variously. <laughs> the Hellfire Club is drinking like a lot of glasses of water and then in one scene, like what seems to be gravy. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a scene where Emma walks across the room to grab a specific glass of water and just down it entirely angrily. And I assume that that one was vodka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so I wanted to also talk about Dazzler's role in this because I, you know, I appreciate that they put Dazzler in. I felt like it's weird because we really don't need her and she kind of does nothing. Um but I get that they kind of wanted a new character to be like the introduction to the Hellfire Club or the inner circle, sorry, what they call it. Um, and I, it's weird that they had Dazzler but not Kitty. And I had found an article that said like in the 90s at that time, like Marvel was very not interested in Kitty Pride. Like she was no longer like 
you know, in the early, in when she was introduced in the 80s, she was like very popular and then she got popular later on. But like at this time it was, she was considered like a non-character. And I never thought of the fact that she's not in this part. She's one of the few X-Men that like is never featured. I mean, she might be in a background somewhere because they do that a lot, but she's never really like North Star has a line in an episode and she doesn't. It's kind of weird, right? I feel like that's because Jubilee is our focalizing character in this. And she plays the sort of teen through which we see the X-Men. And they had already had um, Kitty like sort of bomb in that part in Pride of the X-Men. So it's like, you can't do that again. So I feel like they were kind of scared. What strikes me as odd is the Jubilee is not in any of these episodes. That's Yes, that was my next note. It's like they didn't, they didn't put Kitty in. <laughs> they erased Jubilee completely, even though she's kind of the Kitty character in this cartoon. <laughs> Yeah, I like. I mean, are we Dazzler fans? I really love Dazzler as I a love character. Dazzler. Um, yeah. I kind of am sad she's not Disco Dazzler here. Actually, instead we yeah. get the nineties, uh, the the Australian Dazzler. I was mostly really sad that we did not get to see the world's creepiest disco from the comic. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what year is the comic again? Oh God, I think it's like it's like eighty eight or eighty. Oh, okay. So Disco is dead already. The Brood, the Brood Saga is 82, and this would have been a little bit before that. So it, like the idea of Disco having died is sort of pregnant in this episode. Then, <laughs> Okay, wait. I'm opening my graphic novel because it's on my desk right now, and it says it was a, the trade was originally published in 1980. Okay, okay so the comics yeah. would have been 78, 79. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I think what Dazzler gives you and what the Disco Club does give you is um, the idea of, like, there is something, like, dangerous, dangerously sexual about the space, and specifically about the way that this, like, weird uh, swingers energy enters the room where, like, Cyclops <laughs> is suddenly making out with Dazzler, Gene uh, is making out with Mastermind, right? Like, this is sort of the scene that activates the question of Gene's, like, burgeoning sexual energy, right? And I love, so there's a scene in when Jean returns and she's laying in that bed and Cyclops says like, oh, I met this woman and, you know, these, I forget like his line, but he says he needs to go back to see Dazzler. And Jean, <laughs> Jean has been doing her like soft Jean voice and she immediately goes into her dark phoenix and it's like, you want to leave me to be with another woman? Go then. And it's hilarious. <laughs> and also me dating. <laughs> also contains... I think one of the grossest scenes in all of the X-Men comic, which is Wolverine slicing salami with his claws and Cyclops asking for a piece. Those knives are stored <laughs> inside his body. <laughs> yeah, is this supposed to indicate like how out of its Cyclops is at that point? Like, is this supposed to be a specific character moment? God, Wolverine eating with his claws is, 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 ne- is never okay. It's, just, it's yeah. never, never okay. Also, he's using all three to slice the salami. Like, those slices are going to be, like, two inches thick. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, though, it's this moment that, like, specifically that slicing the salami with his claws, that's one of those things that really seared into my brain and I carried with me without remembering anything else about the cartoon until I watched it as a grown-up. But I remembered that moment of slicing the salami. That's, like canonically true to wolverine those are the beats that always made x-men matter to me is like just them being friends at home actually i'm always a little touched by how oddly like bros wolverine and cyclops are in this scene like cyclops is talking about dazzler and wolverine's like wait wait, shut up gene's here right (laughs) yeah (laughs) because normally they kind of hate each other (laughs) yeah which plays right till the end right like when 
um, Wolverine offers to die for Jean so that she can come back and be with Cyclops. Like, there's a weird uh, friendship here that I like. I don't know. I, I think it's like a shared love of Jean. It's like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like, uh, this guy's mourning this woman that we both love. So, like, let me be nicer to him. I don't know. So that we don't um, like each other, but we do have one really significant common interest. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And there's maybe some mutual respect that begrudgingly comes after the fact out of that. Right. Which can blossom into like the current era's compersion that's happening, right? <laughs> For sure. Uh, but so I, it's weird. That, like in my brain, the they fight the Hellfire Club for like three episodes until they're on the moon because I love, I kind of love that we get to the point, right? It's like, oh, Dazzler's, Dazzler's fine. Donald Pierce, Gene's back. Oops, we got to go to the Hellfire Club because Gene was kissing Mastermind and we know that's where she is. And we get right to the action. And I think, I, I don't know if it's just like nostalgia, but I love these fight scenes so much and they feel very comic book to me. But I don't know if, again, it's like what formed what, like if this kind of informs how I view comic book fights or if vice versa. But I I think these are like very comic booky for a cartoon. And I just, I love them. Like Rogue is punching Sebastian Shaw and gets punched through a wall. But like, we know she's fine as kids watching it. We would know she's fine. Just like knocked out as adults watching it. We know she's fine. Like, I love that kind of fight where it's like people are just destroying the shit out of the surrounding, but it's like, they'll be okay. We know like it's fine. Oh yeah. That's definitely one of my favorite things about the cartoon. The fact that there's just a complete disregard for the scenery. Right. (laughs) It's all collateral damage. It does not matter. Well, one of the biggest challenges is they can't show a person punching like another person. So, so they're constantly being thrown into furniture and like and through walls. <laughs> um, the only time they show Rogue uh, punching Shaw, but because it's Shaw, like he just stands there and it doesn't affect him at all. And I feel like that's why they were able to get away with it. Well, I think well, Anthony doesn't. Ro- I feel like Rogue punches a lot of because she punches that like. Of course, now I can't remember his name. The fire dude of the Imperial Guard. Gladiator. Um, yeah, you can punch like a non-human. <laughs> you can punch like a non-human. They can get away with that. But um, the creators actually said that one of the only human-to-human punches they ever got away with is in the pilot when Wolverine punches Cyclops in the stomach. Uh, I guess one of the things, I mean, obviously you talked about how iconic these fights are. This is like one of the most iconic X-Men comic fights ever. And I think one of the reasons it works is First of all, the Hellfire Club is drawn as characters so distinctly, right? Like we know their power sets. We know their uh, interpersonal dynamics. Um, we also know the layout of the Hellfire Club in a really specific way. Like we see Wolverine fall through the floor to the sewer. We know he's got to get back up to the top. Like that's a really iconic moment where Wolverine fights. Actually, the guards he beats up here are the guards who become the Reavers later. Is that right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are the reavers. So he like oh. he he maims all these men who then become uh, Donald Pierce's robot henchmen later on, uh, even though here he never makes contact with their bodies. <laughs> that I never knew that Anthony. Hmm, I yeah, something. it's actually the name in the cartoon in the comic. Their names are like Reese and like what are they? What are they? Macon is one of the other ones. And like when they eventually show up later, it's the same guys with all of the injuries Wolverine gave them. Yeah, only, the you know, one of them has tank treads. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because, of course. Uh, 
but yeah, I I love this I love this fight scene, and I I feel like for the cartoon, this felt very different, even though it is like fairly comic book accurate. It felt like a different kind of villain because these people are like they are dramatic. They do have like these absurd costumes, but they still felt like. I don't know, like it's still as a kid, you get like it's like an insidious club of rich people, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not, but they're also still mutants. It's not, it feels like it's like very different from what we've watched them fight prior to this in the cartoon, at least. Yeah, I, I've always felt, I mean, these have, this has changed in the present comic books, but I always liked the Hellfire Club because some of them are mutants and some of them hate mutants, but they're all rich. And that to me is definitely one of the ways the Republican Party works. Is like, you will <laughs> yeah, fight yeah, against yeah. your own interests. If like, so Sebastian well, Shaw, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Sebastian Shaw is perfectly willing to invest in like the Sentinel Project and like fund Project Wide Awake, as long as at the end of the day, he's super rich. And that to me feels very honest. And yeah, like a kind of villain, the X-Men, it adds a, a color to the palette that the X-Men don't always have. Well, because the X-Men less so in the 90s because they're so much the central the center of the Marvel publishing line and less so in the cartoon because BSNP. But they're perpetual outsiders and they're perpetually at odds with with larger systems. And the Hellfire Club is the group that, you know, that funds and supports the system even when it's against their their interests. So in a lot of ways, even though they don't seem like a parallel. They're the closest thing the X-Men have to an equal opposite. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Right, that's true. Um, and I like that this, in the comic, they do this specifically where the Hellfire Club thinks of them as small potatoes, right? Like there's a moment where Shaw is like, wow, we could take out the Avengers now if we wanted to. And it's clearly he's thinking of it as an upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and I, I actually really like the voice actor they got for Sebastian Shaw. I think he's like, I mean, most of the voice actors are what I still think of the voices in the comic, but it's like he's one of the villains that I definitely even because I don't think they don't pop back up again, do they? The Hellfire Club in the cartoon? I don't think they escape, but then they never appear again. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think we ever see them again. So it's only in like these three episodes that we see Sebastian Shaw, but that's like the voice of Sebastian Shaw to me in my head when I read comics, Mm -hmm. like still. I love all the Hellfire Club voices, the villains in this show in general get to have so much fun and are clearly just having so much fun with their performances. <laughs> and I mean, even, even like dark Phoenix, I, I, it's, is so delightfully scenery chewing in such contrast to Jean's regular voice. It's hard to believe it's the same actress sometimes. Yeah. yeah. She's like really going in. Um, I also love the, the choice to give Emma a much larger part here. She's actually not in any of this stuff in the original material. She's like, she, we're meant to believe she's dead after the initial fight with Jean. Yeah, she kidnaps um, Kitty and gets a building a building knocked down on her. Right. <laughs> which then in the next issue is described as a suicide, which I don't think. <laughs> Standing under a building as it falls. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> I mean, it could be. Right, if, yeah. I think this know, is the Gravedigger's conversation. took it. Uh, <laughs> can't thoughts, I'm sorry. <laughs> But I, I actually, I do like them including Emma here because I, so again, when I like, so I didn't like breeze read. I just like flipped through to look at the pictures mostly today when I finally found my copy of Dark Phoenix. Um, I was like, wait, is that Phoenix? Is that considered Phoenix Saga or is that the Dark Phoenix? Like I couldn't remember if the Emma thing happened in, was considered Phoenix Saga or Dark Phoenix Saga. Um, 
but it is Dark Phoenix. And I kind of, I mean, for the purposes of the cartoon, I think it works, right? I think it works that Emma's in the room there. They make it that she's the one that gets mastermind in her brain instead of, in the comic, he has like a device, right? It's just like right, a which random... Right, yeah. Yeah. It um, adds to the the sexual tension thing, right? Like, because Jean becomes her replacement. Like there, the, yeah. It puts more interdynamics in the Hellfire Club. I think it's really a, a smart... Actually, a lot of the changes the cartoon makes, I think, are actually quite incisive ones. Yes. It also gives us someone in the inner circle saying, this is a terrible idea. Look at the things that can go wrong and subsequently go wrong, which always felt like a really notable gap in the comics. Right. Yeah. This sort of male bluster is never really, no one is, no one is voicing their objections. <laughs> Leah, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just agreeing. No. <laughs> uh, so we get the fight, they, they get defeated and Jean for like, her first of a bajillion times in the next few episodes says that she's not Jean Grey. She is the Phoenix. She's explicitly telling them, like, this is going to be a problem for all of you. Uh, but everyone kind of refuses to listen. Um, but the X-Men get defeated in this really cool fight. But then that's kind of very quickly. In the next episode, I we get we go back to action. And I can remember back then. So... I bought my first copy, which I think was ruined in my parents' basement when it flooded, of Dark Phoenix Saga at Suncoast Video when they had, like, one shelf of, like, superhero stuff. And I remember it had, like, a weird cover that I haven't seen again. And so I had read it before this, and I remember seeing Wolverine in that sewer when he pops up and, like, gay gasping as a, you know, nine-year-old. I mean, like, that's from the comic? Oh, my God, that's, like... Because it's literally the exact panel from the comic, just animated. Um, and I I know that a lot of people have, like, Wolverine malaise, and I get it, but, like, God, I love Wolverine in this. <laughs> and I think he's done so well adapting him from the Dark Phoenix saga into the cartoon with the personality we've gotten. I don't know. I love watching him tear through the Hellfire Club. I love watching him, like come up and like chop off a chicken leg or turkey leg and just eat it you know i i love all of that <laughs> when he like catches the wig of, <laughs> of one of the like courtiers after you know dispatching of them so quickly and then just casually tosses it back on some passed out guy's head that that was what really worked for me <laughs> <laughs> And I think he even has a line, right? Where he says, like, where do you get your outfits? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so we get, hmm, I, is this where we get the, like, weird, yeah, it is, the weird mastermind Cyclops duel. I, I don't know if this is a hot take, but I feel this way about the, like, Watchmen pirate subplot. We're like, just take it out. Like, I feel in the comics, I get it, but it's like, we're like, we waste a little too much time circling this, like, weird alternate. I get, I get that, like, we need it because he's controlling Gene, but I don't know. I, I think there are ways like, they could have done that better in the cartoon or gotten around yeah. it. Right. It's he's cool just, in the comics because there's been that much buildup and the world's been developed to that point. But here it's just, yeah. It, it gives Cyclops the only real way. I mean, realistically, he's like hopelessly outclassed right in in like a fight with mastermind or a fight with gene but gives him the one chance like literally here's a sword here's another guy with a sword you know fight for your lady love is kind of and i like that it goes to like a you know 
uh, a corset ripping like billowy blouse place because that's the, the, the gender dynamics are so ancient here that I kind of like that it literally sets it in that space. Um, but all of this is very creaky, I think, as like a it's one of those moments where it's like, I think I know more about the writer's kinks at this moment than maybe I'd like. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you can always, especially now looking back at these things, you can kind of see what was informing a lot of these decisions. And I feel like the decision of on Claremont's part of like why, you know, uh, the Dark Phoenix was to be Gene's big story is maybe he had been listening to criticism at the time that he was writing these things about how the fact that Gene is always being, you know, put in peril and she's kind of delicate, mm-hmm. even though she's super powerful, but also she's like fragile minded and, and that kind of thing. So he's like, what is the most shocking thing that I could do with this character so that she's no longer the girl, the damsel, that kind of thing. And of course, obviously, the the immediate pivot is um, bondage queen. Right. And <laughs> naturally, naturally. And I think that this scene um, with Scott and, and Mastermind is kind of a way to shoehorn back in some relevancy for Scott and make him <laughs> uh, matter a little bit more in the cartoon because otherwise, like, what... What, what would be the point of him? What's he going to do? That's true. That is true. And I guess it also shows us, you know, at the end when it's like, oh, he's supposed to be dead. But then we learn I think it's Emma, right? That's like, oh, there's still a link between them. And I guess that's also telling us like, oh, there is still a bit of Jean Grey in there, even though she says there's not a bajillion times and does at the end of this episode, second episode. Um, I, like, I, I get it. I just am like, I don't need this. <laughs> I also like, but neither does Jean, They're... right? Like, she immediately just like wastes Mastermind. Yeah, and she isn't. It's like very soon after this that she's like, you know what? We're good. Like Wolverine comes in, she blasts him, which I do love. I think the like they do a lot of this in this cartoon, but I think really for the Dark Phoenix saga, there's a lot of like, I can't believe the shot is like almost exact from the panel, just animated, mm-hmm. and it. It looks that way when Wolverine comes busting in and she like zaps him and throws him to the side of the room. Like I feel like that looks the way it looked in the comic book, just animated. Um, but then Jean very quickly is like, you know what? You're all free. Fight. I don't give a shit. Like I'm getting out of here. Uh, and I, this fight is just so good. And I wanted to say, which the Central all, Park fight? The no, no. So Jean yeah. leaves. Like she releases the X Men from being captive of the Inner Circle, and they all like have their big fight. Where the X Men oh, win oh. this time? The inner circle is, is fighting among themselves. I thought it was supposed to be cola. It looked like it was carbonated. <laughs> you can make fizzy gravy. <laughs> that's that's true. There, Jay, you point out there is that weird subplot of like they vote out Sebastian Shaw. He's their chairman. I love that his official title in this is chairman. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird, right? <laughs> But like I, I love that. It's like what we're gonna have a vote, and we're gonna all be very diplomatic about it. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what, what is this? And then after the vote, we're gonna fight. Yeah, doesn't will not matter a bit because. Right. And he will rip Gene's that shirt f- off right away. <laughs> <laughs> Pop that shirt right off. <laughs> He's a neat. I really like his power set, and I like that the the cartoon takes a minute to think about 
the difficulty of fighting a person like this. Like they keep hitting him and it's like, well, this isn't working. And then Beast does the spin thing, which I really like. And then I think she does it twice, which bothers me a little from a storytelling point of view. But I like that Storm's like, well, just freeze him and that'll take care of him. (laughs) Yeah. And Rogue has like really good puns in this when she's fighting Donald Pierce. And he rips, she rips off his arm. <laughs> he has like two puns right in a row with thanks for the hand sugar. And then I bet these cybernetics co- things cost an arm and a leg. And she's like really loving all of her puns. <laughs> Conversely, I like that Storm, one of my favorite character beats of Storm, and maybe this is controversial, but for example, I really love in the first X-Men movie, the, the toad line. What happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? Because <laughs> I like the idea that Storm is very funny, but she's so regal that her timing is always incredibly off. <laughs> <laughs> so I love when, um, I forget who it is, but someone, uh, Donald Pierce yells, blast you. And she, she is just like, I believe the pleasure belongs to me. And then oh, yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of a person who's so trapped in their own dignity that making jokes is very hard to land. <laughs> that track (laughs) but and we and when when rogue is fighting donald pierce like he like throws her through like the 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 floor she just gets right back up and goes after him storm everyone does a lot of good screaming in this arc the the all the voice actors for the women get a lot of good screams in i gotta say uh which they didn't often do or at least it was more like uh like screams of pain but this is a lot of like scream screams um i don't know i and like you said, Leia, they have like they don't care about the set dressing. They're just gonna smash through everything. And I kept wondering, like, what's the party going on outside? Like, what, <laughs> what, like, what are they all thinking? Right? Like, in the like whatever ballroom, there's like a party going on, right? Is there? Because you only ever see the people in uniform as footmen. And yeah, yeah. In the car, in the comic, it's there is a party, and yeah, the X Men sort of have like a James Bond moment where they sneak in. And like Senator Kelly is there. Here they just sort of bust in through a skylight. <laughs> <laughs> because Cyclops makes the singularly stupid decision to be like, we need to be stealthy. Hey, Rogue, check things out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the single like subtle people. person on the team. <laughs> uh, so they have their big fight with the Hellfire Club. They, I, I, I also love that the cartoon let them not win. Like they win, but they all get away and we see emma's the first one to like jump out of the building she's like running out of the building halfway through this fight uh i would have liked to see her get involved in the fight a little bit more but i can appreciate emma just being like i'm going see ya um (laughs) but then like sebastian shaw and donald pierce like they all just get away like there's no like defeating them and they're not yeah and they're not like it's not like they're like knocked out or whatever they're just like all right we're gonna go we'll we'll be back whatever um and then Gene takes Mastermind to the roof, and I I felt like this was pretty dark for the cartoon. Even like she kind of like shows his true self and like puts him into like a weird coma. I don't know. That's what was going on. They there. use art that's straight out of the comic. Too. Yeah, yeah. I wish yeah. that that panel used to give me nightmares. Actually, <laughs> the panel <laughs> of him losing his mind with this like touch of the sublime that she gives him really freaked me out as a kid. I don't know why, but it really did. Um, I just wrote it into a different graphic novel because I was like, as a reference, because I was like, the way it like his he sees the cosmic and it ruins him, and it's like, and that is what's happening to Gene at all times. For some reason, really terrified me as a kid. Um, he's never 
the comic is ambiguous about whether Jason Weingard is a, an alias or if that's actually Mastermind's name, right? It only seems to have been it's his name in the comic now. Yeah, right. But like the reveal is strange, right? Like, is not what do you mean? wildly. It's it's well because he he first shows up in the Silver Age when no one gets referred to by anything but their code names, right? So he's just he's just Mastermind. He's just Mastermind. He's just Mastermind. And the only time you hear him having a common name is. Or, or start hearing that is is during the the Dark Phoenix saga, but I mean everyone else refers to him that way at the at the Hellfire Club, and it's confirmed to be his name and his his I think only other appearance in the comics, which is the arc where he dies. Right. I loved that comic. Now he's got I don't even know how many kids he has now. Is it two? I think two. Maybe is three. It, oh no, it? three. Because technically, three. I think I think Pixie is his kid. Right. Oh, that's oh, right. right. Yeah. I had wait. Excuse me. <laughs> is, I had no idea. I didn't know that at all. Well, he's I mean, he's a creep, right? Like he's it's nice. I kind of like that he's dead. Actually, he's very unlikable as a character, but perfect for this. And one of the things that a comic can do, one of the reasons I think that film adaptations of the Dark Phoenix saga often have structural problems is you want these characters who sort of seduce and corrupt Gene, but they have to be off the board for the second and third act, right? Like, it is not interesting if these weird powdered wig people are still around while Gene is melting planets, right? <laughs> so, so I like the way they sort of, Sebastian Shaw disappears into a bookcase and we do not have to worry about him for the rest of this arc. Well, I the, hadn't thought about that. The Dark Phoenix saga keeps scaling up and they're, they're the first yeah. act. Yeah, just like, you're right, Anthony, the powdered wig folks wouldn't work with like a world ending... Like, she's literally eating a star. Like, how would they play into that? Like, it just wouldn't fit. Yeah. And one of the other versions of this I actually really like is the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon, where the Hellfire Club is played more as, like, a cult. But it's the same thing where it's, like, there has to be someone in the room who's, like, this is too much. We should not be doing this. Please do not do this. And then they all get their faces melted. And I really like that as a character. (laughs) (laughs) But I also forgot that she doesn't, like, there's no she's not dark phoenix until the end of part two like she's it's it's a dark phoenix saga but like until she says it and she turns from the black queen into the red dark phoenix outfit she's not that's when she's officially dark phoenix um well yeah that that moment with um mastermind right like that that's the official turn and anthony it is really nightmarish i i totally agree with your like feelings on that it's horrific so it makes sense that you know coming out of that we see the official unveiling reveal of the dark phoenix because we've just witnessed her break a man yeah i think it goes back to jay's point that's like it's like an evil orgasm right and that's why it's scary (laughs) (laughs) because he has he's like he's blissed out when we see him after which is also deeply creepy Um, yeah i don't know i I have my own it's also the first time that she reaches in and just sort of completely voluntarily takes something rather than just accepting something that's offered to her. Yeah. She, she sort of has learned what she needs to learn from them and they go straight into the garbage. You know, a thing when we did our episode, so we've been doing, you know, all the movies and the animated series, a thing when we did last stand episode, which is a horrendous movie, um, our guest Devin, she said that like her biggest issue when they do these dark Phoenix redos in the movies that are also bad is that they don't, they just make Jean, a vessel she's not really there's no she phoenix is never making any it feels like she's not making choices 
But in the cartoon, I think, and I, I could still see that problem being uh, something someone says because I can see it. But I think the cartoon does a little bit better at that because the comic did a little better at that of like Dark Phoenix is like, nope, I'm going to get rid of you, Mastermind, and I'm going to go eat this star and I'm going to just destroy everything because I'm fucking pissed. And she kind of at least it's not like, ooh, because Xavier, she was a multiple personality and Xavier tried to erase like it's not any of that bullshit i don't know i like that as a villain she has agency yeah dark phoenix or, or phoenix is is its own thing it's not I, I i'm making making phoenix a byproduct of xavier is is one of my least favorite choices ever mm, agreed narratively and and i mean it's still it's still an external thing an external force but it's 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 one that has at least its own agency and it doesn't go off to eat a planet because it's angry it goes off to eat a planet because it's decided that evil is fun. Like it's very, mm-hmm. very explicit. Like I came here for new sensations and you opened my eyes to evil and to, to predation. And now I'm real into them. And now I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which I feel like that's very like monstery villain, right? Like the, Ooh, now I realize what I can do and I'm hungry for it. I do uh, think the story loses a little, I mean, obviously I under- completely understand why they have to do this, but like, it spends a lot of time establishing like the Dabari system is uninhabited and it would be terrible if there were people yeah, living over here. and over and over. <laughs> but I do think as much as I think it's actually important at, at a story level that the Phoenix gets as much pleasure from wiping out that planet as it does from eating that star, right? Like it, the death is part of it. The death is part of the pleasure of eating that star. Um, and it, I do feel like it's, I mean, obviously we need to be able to forgive her by the end of this story, but I do miss I do miss the the, the death of a planet here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I even put in my notes. I like looked because I was like when we when I was watching it, I was like I'm positive in the comic. I was thinking that it was like a whole solar system full of, but it's only one of the planets that's inhabited. They like they explicitly say, but they also say when they're describing the planet that it's like a peaceful alien race that inhabited this planet that she destroyed. Um, did you all notice and i can't i'm not sure because of course i don't remember is it just disney plus but like in part three when she's like doing her supernova dark phoenix thing the flashes there are all very chaotic and not well like not in a like well done way on purpose it's like flashing between gene and sometimes she's moving sometimes she's not i don't know like for me i was like like it was like kind of jarring and i didn't mean like uh when she's fighting the X-Men or later in, in part after she's given mastermind his like coma, a taste of like the darkness. And then we get to the next part when she's like on that rooftop and the X-Men are all like there and she's giving her speech. Um, Oh, it was like very flashy in like a weird. Oh, that's, (laughs) I don't know if you, that's actually Disney Plus's bug is at the beginning of episodes. It frequently just holds stills for a little bit. That's a Disney Plus bug. <laughs> You'll sometimes notice the opening of the episode, like the the opening titles, the like, it'll play the music right, but it'll just be flashing stills and it eventually gets, it catches up with the buffering rate. Well, but so also in that part, Storm, I don't know. I like, I think the cartoon did such a good job with the characters because Storm is screaming like, do not do it. And Beast is just, oh dear. Like, oh dear. What a yeah. great first line for an episode. Oh dear. Right? Understated, oh dear is, is the top of my notes for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the ducks beat, uh, Jay, yeah. which you also had feelings about. You get the ducks beat. We get, we get Wolverine um, getting thrown into a duck pond and on his way in just muttering 
ducks. Before we see where he's headed, but it looks like he's just saying it as a swear. <laughs> and then when he lands, he, he, you know, flushes out, I hate ducks. And it's it, it feels really ad-libbed, but kind of in a great way. I'm really curious as to whether that was scripted. I think we need to add, we'll, Ian, we'll need to ask when we talk yeah. to the showrunners if they ad-libbed in the room. Because I get a feeling these actors really liked each other's company. Yes. Yeah. And they were like very into the characters. Uh, yeah. And you know, a, a thing that I noticed, so Beast says, oh dear, twice in this episode, Rogue in the previous part gives her very, I think very iconic. Like I, I can remember trying to like make my Rogue action figure say this the way she says it in the cartoon, her like, what in the world? And like, she does it twice. Yeah. And I kind of love There's that. There's some recycled <laughs> dialogue bits but i also think it's really well written like we get the the get away from her you witch like aliens um homage uh we get wolverine really putting a pin in like the theme of women troubles when he's like speaking of mood swings like this fight has a lot of really good character and thematic uh quips in it that i think like a good fight scene should do that it's like not just people punching each other but like let me describe the themes of the episode (laughs) really quick yeah, I, I mean, Anthony, and I, I think we've talked about this. That's why, like, I think us talking X-Men while we spent six seasons talking about Buffy um, kind of, like, makes sense. Because I feel like that is the kind of genre that, like, especially you and I both like, right? It's, like, make the fight scene more interesting by, like, having good quips and good dialogue right. in it. Because yeah. otherwise I don't care as much, And right? it, it does, I mean, what's neat about this Central Park fight is, like, Everyone in the fight, both on Jean's end and on the X-Men's end, is pulling their punches and trying to learn how much they can pull their punches, I think is a fascinating, like, Cyclops is like, go easy on her. And Storm is immediately like, I summon a hurricane. (laughs) Everyone (laughs) is trying to figure out how much they can do. And like, where is the, the fun of a Dark Phoenix fight is like, where is the threshold where I incapacitate you without hurting you is like a really fun thread that goes basically the whole episode, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that I, the similarity you guys were going to say between um, all of the Buffy stuff and this was like Willow having her Dark Phoenix turn in the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Which I actually I've never noticed until this that Willow's line to Giles about being a rank, arrogant amateur is in this when Jean says like the great pleasure for every uh, teacher is to be surpassed by their student. And she gives like the buckle up Rupert kind of moment here. Um, What this cartoon does really well, I mean, this goes to Jay's point is like, Xavier has nothing to do with the Phoenix. He still comes off as a complete dick throughout this story. Yes. Yes. I mean, he's, he is the one who more than anyone else agitates, you know, just kill her. We'll, we'll take care of it later. He's the one who, who's the, you know, we have to do it. And actually, I mean, I, what I thought you were going to say when you were talking about Buffy to this is that, X-Men and specifically Claremont's X-Men is such a direct antecedent to so much of the structure and dialogue on Buffy. Oh, yeah. yeah. To the point that like the, and it, it, it ends and it goes differently, but Xander's um, crayon speech in the Dark Willow episode is basically Scott talking Jean down before Xavier you know, gets whoever it is to, to slap the mind control crown on her in the comic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all, all the DNA of all of that is 100%. I mean, even the I mean, famously, Kitty Pride is just Buffy, right? Like, yeah, and I mean, Whedon writes like someone who learned to write dialogue from the Claremont run. <laughs> exactly. While I, totally in love with Kitty Pride. Yeah. Right. I right. <laughs> I will say, I think it does. I think the dialogue is better. I don't think the quips 
Claremont had were always quite there. I think his dialogue was a little bit too wordy for me. Um, like even <laughs> no. It's so gently as if it's not an established thing. <laughs> as if that is not the common feeling among I felt like the three of you were going to be like, what are you talking about? Because I was like, no. Mm. I, I, love, I love a radioactive purple prose moment. Like I do love, <laughs> I do love when something goes over. Like you have to be willing to be a little over the top to get away with like, I am fire and life incarnate, you know, like <laughs> it takes his, his like quick little beats are less. So although I've been rereading the Sinkowitz new mutants, he is very spare on those pages. Like, He's really, really specific to the artists. If you go from that yeah. to the first Wolverine miniseries, it's like reading three different writers. Yeah. He like, he looks at a page and is like, well, I'm just going to flood this. Or he's like, I'm going to get out of the way. I do think he makes choices. Yeah. Or even going between, between Cockrum and, and Byrne and then um, Paul Smith, like the, the, the brood saga completely changes his approach to narration. Mm-hmm. And in his defense, I mean, I, I, I keep being, I feel like I'm coming off as like hating Claremont. He's like one of the greatest writers of comic books. I really do believe. But like in his defense for these huge, dense pages, like that's why we feel like we know his X-Men so well. Because we are so often like in their heads, hearing their thoughts, hearing their like specific feelings in a way that if you tried to get away with on a page now, the audience will turn on you. Oh, unquestionably. And that's part of what gives this its sense of high epic stakes. Yeah, exactly. It's not high epic narration. Yeah, which, I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> Ian's <I'm> bored. Gonna, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will do the thing I do all the time when Anthony is being very smart and I'm being kind of a dumb-dumb. I promise I have two degrees, but I still get, like, bored. Like, I'm like, all right, just fucking get I mean, the point. I admit there is a moment sometimes where you turn a page and you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on what it's adding. Like, if it's additive enough to the story, then it doesn't feel like anything you have to slog through but there are times when you're you're reading stuff that it might might feel a little like fillery or a bit self-indulgent on behalf of the writer (laughs) you know um if it's not as additive as it should be but i i think that when when it was good, it was very good mm-hmm. and and totally gripping. And then other times it just felt a little silly. Yeah, agreed. That's a very fair take. <laughs> but I mean, also then in the cartoon we have, I made note of this line because it was so ridiculous. Like Dark Phoenix clearly knows language. She speaks English and she's like, love, I do not understand. Your answer is unacceptable. And it's like, oh my God, this is so good slash stupid. <laughs> Because well, Cyclops is like telling Jean he loves her, and she's just like, I don't know what that is. So the this third episode feels point. like the point where that peaks. That's I I think this is the one. No, it's 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 in number two that that Professor X talks to Cerebro like it's a Star Trek computer. But <laughs> it's 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 there's there's so much that changes in episode three, and so much that has to shift just in terms of establishing status quo and establishing characters and establishing context that that's the point where it feels like it kind of skips beats. Mm. But it it also expands some. Like I I find the um, Jean visiting her childhood house is better than it is in the comic. It's better without her parents there. Yeah. Yeah. And with that creepy fog that they put over the whole scene and like, we see the cat Prometheus, yeah, which is a great for childhood cat Prometheus. <laughs> <laughs> Cats would definitely have stolen fire from the humans. Right. 
Well, but it's, you know, it's evocative. Jean has stolen the god's fire too, right? And like her weird Cyclops doll that she has, which has strange implications about her relationship <laughs> with Cyclops. <laughs> uh, so a thing they do, which they always did in this cartoon that I loved, because like, you know, back then there was no, didn't matter, is when she goes like full Phoenix and leaves Central Park, we see Doctor Strange. And I looked in the comic and it's, the exact pose he yeah. has in it. Like, even the pose is the same, which is crazy <laughs> that it is in the comic. And then we see Thor and uh, the Watcher. And it's weird that we don't get Spider-Man. So in the comic, it's Spider-Man, Spider-Man is there saying like, oh, my senses are tingling because the cartoons had crossovers back then. So it is weird that we didn't. But I love that we just, they're like, mm, show these characters. They're not going to, it's not going to matter. We're not going to go back to them, but like, let's show them. And as a kid, I, that shit would make me like, I'd be like, ah, this is this is it. This is the best thing. Like I thought that shit was had the greatest cameos. At one point, all of TechNet is just in the background of a scene. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Spider-Man is an overpromise for kids, though. Like you don't want to show Spider-Man yeah, yeah. to an eight-year-old and then be like, never show him again. <laughs> you know, like, that's a risk. Doctor Strange, the watch. This is the only Watcher cameo, where he, whereas he gets like a bigger beat in the comic. He narrates all of 137 in the comic. And then he like has a fight with Wolverine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it is nice when the show does this kind of scale thing. Um, Like with the episode where he's all the psychics are there. I remember Leah knows exactly what I'm going to talk about. It's the only cameo (laughs) strife in the, in the cartoon. (laughs) So weird, right? (laughs) But yeah, I can remember that like being like, because I always taped them on VHS, I like paused it to look at all of the telepaths that were in. Because like Moon Dragon is in there too, mm-hmm. I think. Like there's like a ton of weird random telepaths in that scene. But the cartoon had, I think, I would imagine the artists just had fun doing that, right? I can't imagine them like plotting like every character in the background has to be like. I feel like the artists were just like mm, threw some dice at the wall and they're like, okay, these uh, I imagine. The I feel like they boards. did plot it. Yeah, <laughs> you think so? I. I think that it was something done deliberately because this happens in the comics too, where if you want to give a bigger sense of scale of something uh, that's happening, um, you know, putting in somebody outside of the X-Men bubble is definitely the shortcut to accomplishing that. So having these like quick cuts to Dr. Strange and Thor and the Watcher is, is definitely to me, it looks like a deliberate sense of scaling up. Yeah, likewise. Well, yeah, for that, I totally think that is. Um, I meant more like like when they go to like Slave Island and it's just like there's like a bajillion like Feral and North Star in the oh. background and like in costume. Well, they um, also had a, I mean, as much fun as it would be for the artists, they also had a really specific action figure cameo mandate, right? <laughs> like it's it's kind of hard to recoup now how much the action figure industry was driving this show's success. And they were they definitely had to be like, you've got to put forearm in this episode or you're on your ass. <laughs> so. Yeah. And it has a lot to do with renewing trademarks too. Oh true. Um, yeah. So when and, and these things are budgeted as well. So for every inclusion, it has to be uh, like packaged into a part of the animation budget. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that whatever, and this is something you can ask the showrunners about, <laughs> whatever like unexpected inclusion you see as background dressing, whether it's Doctor Strange or Feral, um, there was probably a reason for it, That's even if fair. it's not connected to the story. 
it's like so, the old it's not as bad as it was like in the 80s which i am old enough to remember the reagan era where suddenly all these licenses where it's like you worked on he-man and the toy company would bust in and be like you have to put this guy in and it's like well who is he like and you have to like make up the story for like this elephant headed man or whatever he so. smells kind of bad and he's made of spare parts <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) Anthony. Actually, wasn't there a specific article about that in Wizard Magazine? Because I feel like I read an article about this. Like, oh, I do not know. I would be yes. That would that sounds right though. (laughs) That's one hundred percent. I remember reading about that. I remember some. It might not have been He Man, but it was like a cartoon from back then that was like nerdy that I liked. I remember like one of the showrunners being like, "We had to put this character in because there was a toy." Oh yeah, I mean, Mary Hama talks about it with GI Joe all the time, and like Transformers was the same. Where it's like you look at this guy, and it's like you basically have to decide like, well, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Like the writers were always working backwards from whatever the toy company had made <laughs> so yeah which i i also have in my notes i forgot to mention this when we got to emma frost i was so upset that it took forever for them to put out an emma frost like, they didn't put out one till there was a generation x toy line which you know was a lot later i used my invisible woman action figure and i first made an outfit out of tissues and when that <laughs> didn't work i made an outfit out of a white sock that i put on top of her so that way I could have an Emma Frost to fight my X-Men. Leah, you should put Emma charmed by this. <laughs> Leah, you need to give Emma a cameo in her sock outfit. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Which, Anthony, I feel like there's a direct line between me making a sock outfit and then the like, covers I do now for Slayer Fest. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, we're all sort of performing our traumas. It's true. Right. And this is just... <laughs> This is just the the '90s thing where like women action figures don't sell, right? Like, right. Every gay boy would have had that Emma. I definitely had right, one that did come out. I remember when they put out a Rogue. I remember that being like a big deal and being like, "Yes, I'm finally getting a Rogue action figure." And that one is currently on my desk right now. Like, I still have that like little five inch with the punch action, <laughs> and she was my favorite because she got to like you know punch all the monsters. Like, she was the one that could fist fight the monsters, so that was like my favorite. But getting back to Dark Phoenix, uh, so they have the fight. She leaves. She goes to eat the star. They say it's uninhabited. Um, then we get, is it part three? Yeah, part no, three she is. Her, she goes home. We get right. the extreme record scratch horror line of daddy's home, which is like exactly right. Like, <laughs> just like, oh, no, like all of the parental issues and the like weird sex issues all at once it's really horrible yeah and so it's wrong, actually the so x-men right. which throws professor x into all of that which <laughs> is ideal um, anthony that's so actually that's like exactly right like it's terrible but exactly right cyclops is in his breakdown outfit which i always like when he's in the jacket and he doesn't have the gloves on it's just like <laughs> okay the best version of sweatpants <laughs> it shows up in that outfit but he shows up in that outfit in a station wagon yeah <laughs> Center there, and he just drives up in this random brown station wagon, which might be his car. I think he has that car in Night of the Sentinels too. I see, waiting I in the parking like, lot for the X Men. I thought mall. it was just like her parents' car, and that was like to trick her. Even though it feels like, how could they possibly trick Jean Grey slash Dark Phoenix at this point? No, because her dad's car is pink and it's a sedan. <laughs> They keep the family. Note, I, 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 I rewind. I rewound to check the difference, and no, it's it's a totally different car. <laughs> the family keeps literally popping into the frame and not saying anything throughout this fight. Scene. No, those are the neighbors. 
Oh, is that what is it? I think it's the neighbors. I thought they were the design of the parents from the comic, so I thought I did too. But I don't know. They don't say anything. Whatever they, they don't say. I yeah, feel like the neighbors a... popping in to just casually watch all of this go down is no less bizarre <laughs> than yeah. the family watching it but not saying anything. And I like this beat as a as a fight. I like this as sort of a moment. Is like um, the, one of the only things I actually really really like in the recent Phoenix movie is making this fight sort of about suburbia and about this woman who sort of has exceeded her like 1950s growing up like picket picket (laughs) fence thing i like that a lot as like a a tableau yeah yes i i really do like um i i it's it's like the only thing i liked about last stand is when they're fighting in the gene gray in gene gray's like childhood home um because I like the idea of this, like super, like we've already, That's right, you know, this, and does it too. Yeah, at, at this point, we've already had. We know she's all powerful. She just ate a star. Like we know that's been established in the cartoon already. But I like that this fight is taken to like a lower stakes before we get even bigger stakes of like a fight on the moon, right? I think it's like a really good. I don't know to show you like, well, this is her house, but like, look how big she's gotten. The fight on the moon isn't bigger stakes, though. It goes it goes from the the medium low stakes Hellfire Club, big cosmic stakes, space planet eating, and then it goes goes in an entirely different plane. It, just, it goes to the switches to the personal at this point. Well, yeah. I think it's to show how much she's outgrown it. Yeah, like her while her scale has increased, um, you know, revisiting this old part of her life is is probably an attempt to show how ill it fits at this point. Yeah. Um, so I go, I go back and forth. I'm not sure if I'm a problem here, but like Professor X, so Cyclops like gets through to her. They kind of, I, I my pro, my only problem with Dark Phoenix, and this is not the cartoon's fault. This is the comics as well. We go back and forth so much with like, Jean's still there, but like also she ate a star, but like also it's Dark Phoenix, but like, oh, but it's still Jean that we love. Uh, And I mean, I guess maybe that's like the point of the story that there's like a little bit of a moral gray area because I'm like, Wolverine's kind of right. Like he should probably kill her. I don't know. Like, but also in this, it's like she hasn't killed a whole planet of people. So maybe not. I don't know. But in the comics, it's like she destroyed a solar system with a planet full of people. I don't know. I I don't know. I go back and forth with that at this point because it's like they've watched her not be her. So what does everyone think about that? And with like, are are you asking if she's still sympathetic by this point? Like, are we rooting for her, or if we agree with Wolverine that she should just be taken out? Yeah, yeah. I think that in the comics, it's easier to make that argument because there's you know a body count associated with her destruction, and it's since it is more ambiguous in the cartoon. Obviously, since it's you know supposed to be more suitable for children, I would not be willing to like put her down <laughs> at this point. I, I, you know, like who's, who's going to miss that star? Were there people living there? Was it deserted? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's think about this. Maybe Even she just needed a snack. Low blood sugar. Cause so there was, this is going to be, I feel like all of you are comic experts. So maybe you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a, what if issue where like, what if Wolverine had killed, dark phoenix um i think in that world it was like he was part of he never joined the x-men and it was like he was on alpha flight 
um, and she like murdered all of Alpha Flight, so he did kill her. Um, and I always think of that, but it's like he did, and then like it got worse because then it was just Dark Phoenix, and I think she like kills everyone or something. Um, but I don't know. I always go back and forth with that because I guess you're right. It is depending on if you're talking about the cartoon version or the comics. In the comics, she did destroy a world. So maybe we don't want her to do that again. But in this, it's like, oh, star, who cares? Like, no big deal. Well, they, they the make, they make... also... Go ahead. Well, I I have since retconned that um, destroying the Dabari people. So in the comics now, <laughs> they are back and they are doing fine. <laughs> <It's just laughs> this, this helps our, our argument here. <laughs> Wait, did you specifically retcon it? I writing? did, yes. Oh. <laughs> it, it was in um, uh, the X-Men Gold number one annual. I did like an original Excalibur cast reunion, and it was just like a one-shot I co-wrote with uh, Mark Guggenheim. Um, and I I wanted to, you know, bring the Dabari back, make sure they were okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh. <laughs> Wait, you saved the Dabari. Yeah, hmm? you saved the Dabari. This should be. This should be like. This. This should be a more prominent accomplishment. Yeah, they are thriving. Actually, <laughs> are they the same people? No, nobody. There is no death count. Um, they are. They are not the same. Uh, like it hasn't restored the lives that were lost, that were eaten, but there was like a you know space station outpost with a colony of Dabari living aboard it that they were just kind of nomadic um but then because of like you know Excalibur Excalibur cross time capers and different alternate realities I had them find one a, a separate reality where the Dabari hadn't been killed and um you know they were able to reunite with another version of their people mm-hmm. in this alternate reality. A happy ending for the Dabari after all. <laughs> at least taking well, things from, from genocide down to mass murder. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of win. Lalandra teleports down. Um, I wanted to point, I, I love the outfit they put Lalandra in when she, before she teleports back, which is her regular armor, but like her like pink, she has like a pink sash thing going on that's like kind of like a um what's what, what's what's the word anthony what am i looking for I, I feel like a chiffon from it i think that, <laughs> yeah it, it flows like a chiffon yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's a chiffon i like the whole in a i mean a cartoon where we're so used to there's actually a lot of like fashion semiotics happening here like yeah. the hardness of lalandra's sort of imperial carapace versus her like hanging out with Charles and like flowing satins is well, like her casual her casual outfit involves a hot pink cape which is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> like I just I have so much more respect for the Shi'ar Empire after watching this than I have after any number of comics just for that cape. The sparkly Shi'ar teleportation effect um, <laughs> is like my favorite thing. It's really glittery <laughs> and over the top. I love it. <laughs> They're a very aesthetic society. I really like. Yes, I, I, I appreciate that. Like as a culture, like that armor, the like the weird, like what if the Roman Empire lasted like five thousand more years? Kind of look to their society mm-hmm. really delights me. Um, 
And it's strange how much real estate they get in the rest of this episode, right? Like Charles and Lalandra kind of have a, a spat for the rest of it. Um, that I feel like basically affects their breakup for the cartoon. Does she come back in any realistic way? I don't think I don't think in the cartoon she does. Denver I think this is like a major part of the apocalypse story. So maybe she's there. Oh yeah, maybe she is. Yeah, because they get Tempest. Right. Well, no, Temp. Oh. Yeah. Or Tem- not Tempest. Um, Tempest. Oracle. Oracle. Right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> a mix of my Shi'ar guards. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so. Also, Xavier puts on his astral plane armor when he's fighting Jean before they like win, which I really liked because I don't think that's in this comic, but it is the astral plane armor he wears in oh, the, the for comics. his Shadow King fight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Lalandra teleports out. Part four has like a very long previously on X Men that doesn't even include the Inner Circle, which is. I, you know, they put a lot of faith into kids at the time, and I think that's probably why we liked it, because, like, a lot of cartoons didn't have that much faith in, like, our ability to watch it and, like, be like, yes, this is continued from this episode. <laughs> this is, like, you know, like, I mean, people always compare, like, oh, Batman and X-Men were the best ones, but I don't think Batman did it a lot of that, where it, like, had faith in you, other than to remember, like, this is the Joker, this is Robin. Like, I don't know that there was a lot of carryover, Right. Yeah, almost none. The Batman cartoon is like elemental, right? Like nothing exists before this episode. Almost nothing exists after this episode, right? Like you could basically watch all of Batman in any order. There's not a ton of continuity from beat to beat. Whereas this is like Brett, called, <laughs> Brett White called it appointment television, right? Like <laughs> yeah, what one of the things, and it goes to what you were saying about the the amount of characters in it. Like what I like about the X Men as a cartoon is the canvas. The canvas continues beyond the frame, right? Like there's characters who you don't know who they are. The plots don't kind of mind if you lost the beginning or the end. It's just sort of that's the experience of comics to me is like you don't know who everyone is in the comic. At least, I mean, now we all do because we're all big losers. But like when you're, <laughs> when you're a kid, that's the pl- I remember picking up like X-Force 16 was one of my first comics. And it's like there's 40 people in this comic. I don't know who <laughs> any of them are. And that's kind of the pleasure of it is like the glimpses of their lives in a, in a deep background I can't see. I was just going to bring that up. I think that it's also a phenomenon kind of unique to the X-Men um, franchise in particular because it is character based and there are so many humanizing moments where we see their flaws and we see their eccentricities so even if you are you know picking up a story in the middle of this really sweeping saga and you might not understand what exactly is happening um in the larger context of issues you haven't read yet you're still being threaded through on the merits of these character moments and connecting with that yeah and right that's yeah i i really think that's why so many of us connected with x-men back in the day because like we connected with these characters it was like character driven and also they were othered so it's like what baby queer wasn't like right i feel seen (laughs) like (laughs) and they wore great outfits so like cool great throw that in there great i wanted to dress like jubilee and they all lived in a big house together i mean it's it's very much the alienated queer teen dream and found family yeah 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 uh, so once they teleport onto the Shi'ar ship and Lalandra is giving her speech about what uh, Dark Phoenix has done, um, they're, so they're like showing the crowd and then there's like a, they're like superimposing on top of it in like another layer what Jean has done. Um, 
And there's clearly a red version of a xenomorph from Aliens in the crowd. <laughs> well, like, let's not get into whether the brood are legally distinct from the, the, the xenomorphs. <laughs> but it is, like, sitting up and it has, like, the chest cavity. It, like, looks exactly <laughs> like a xenomorph. But it's red. Uh, so... Xavier making the the duel challenge and all of their names is like some extreme Xavier bullshit. Oh yeah, it's uh, definitely a it, Xavier's a dick shot moment for sure. Well, even even and more I, so in the comics because in the comics they're specifically if you lose you all die. Right. Yes. They, they have I, to share her fate in the comic. And I like that the cartoon pauses to have Beast say in all our names, like he's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i forgot like i had to look in the comics i was like how does this play on the comics and it's like oh xavier's that much of a like dick in the comics too he's just like wait i figured out we're gonna do this and like you said jay it's like oh they're supposed to die if they don't win like that's the outcome and the the cartoon tries to like implicate that like it'll be the end of, like i don't know the cartoon like they'll be lets destroyed you have, like, the word they always yeah use. <laughs> yeah <laughs> So Lalandra goes to consult the Supreme Intelligence and the Skrull Queen. Uh, Arkill, yeah. I think who is Hulkling's <laughs> grandmother, Anthony. Yeah, I think because of the recent reveal um that Tanalth is also Arkill, it's possible that I've written more lines for Arkill than any other comic book character. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate this. The, the Skrull Queen is wearing 80s makeup. Yeah. She's, she, she's <laughs> got a look. Great. For sure. <laughs> On green skin, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no. Apparently, those and specific fashion trends are, are just universal across the galaxy. <laughs> also, both their voices are like so silly. Like, the Supreme Intelligence voice isn't what I would ever imagine it sounding it's like. like. An and, accountant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the Skrull Queen is like silly, scary monster. Like, she's like, wah, wah, wah. Like, I love it. <laughs> uh, so we get that. I, I do like the scene of Rogue kind of talking to Cyclops. Rogue, I, I think, I mean, I said this already, but I like what Rogue gets to do in this. Like, I think she's a really good addition and change in this cartoon. Uh, um, And I, I, we don't, I don't know that we get many scenes between Rogue and Cyclops talking in the cartoon uh, or in the comics even. Like, they're not two characters I would have put together for this scene. Uh, like, I think I, if I, I probably would have assumed that you would put Storm in the scene, right? That would make, they're like both the leaders of the X-Men, like, sure. Uh, but then Rogue gets a really good line of once Jean comes in, like, my daddy always said two's company and three's an eavesdropper. Such a good line. <laughs> I like a thread that the cartoon develops that obviously doesn't really exist anywhere else where, and it's a distant one, like, you'd have to work on it, but, um, there's a way that Rogue in the cartoon interacts with Cyclops where it's like, oh, I wish I had what they have. Yeah. Um, where she's so I invested really... in the idea of Scott and Jean and the idea of that kind of love that like she's that much more vehemently dedicated to this situation. Yeah. Like I understand and definitely have been in the situation where like Gambit is the one you're attracted to, but <laughs> she likes the stability of Cyclops. She likes the sort of purity of their love that she can never have. I really like that. Um, going to your point earlier, Ian, like, these we basically get like four scenes of paired characters that sort of articulate about the ethics of this kill, right? Like um, Beast and Storm, is... and then like Gambit and Wolverine, and like Charles and Londra, and then Rogue and Cyclops. And I like that everyone kind of has a different take on yes. it. Um, and, and again, that goes back to me saying like they really had a lot of faith in kids. Like, and I, 
I think that's why it's so good, right? <laughs> like they're talking about the ethics of possibly like their friend dying to save what the universe or whatever. And like, I don't know. I like that they're 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 talk there's talking it out. I mean, you mentioned when we did Night of the Sentinels, how good it is when they get off the the plane and they're going to that facility. They're just talking about their origins and they're like talking through their traumas. And I the cartoon does a really good job of that, I think. Yeah. And you know, the I think the mistake a lot of the Phoenix stories do when they adapt this is to make Wolverine like, well, I've got a killer and he kills her. And it's like, I like that he says there is, it doesn't even matter to him, the ethics of it. Like Jean is a person that he cares about, so he will not hurt her. Like it's like kind of the, would you kill baby Hitler, but you're baby Hitler's parents kind of thing where it's like, well, (laughs) no, (laughs) like it doesn't actually matter. Even if the ethics are true and I'm preventing deaths, this is something I will protect. And I like that as even though they even might think they're going to die right i I really love the way the story is structured yeah yeah and so and i think that that tracks with wolverine as a character right like that is i don't know yeah 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 definitely um and i I mean like kind of done a 180 now now he's willing to protect gene whereas before it's like he was very quick to kill her i don't know (laughs) now he's got another lady to manipulate so oh boy yeah (laughs) Which, to her credit, she completely calls him on it, right? What does she say? That that was beneath you or something? Something like that, yeah. I And I, I think, not to defend him, but I think maybe the reason he has that pivot <laughs> is only because it's like he feels they won and Dark Phoenix isn't there anymore, even mm-hmm. though they're all wrong and she still is. Um, I think he like thinks like, oh, we did the thing. We saved the day. There's no more Dark Phoenix. But like, you know, put on your clown makeup, Charles, because she's still in there and she's going to come out. <laughs> Yeah, Charles Xavier's hubris is always going to be his defining characteristic there. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. He thinks that because his plan did a thing and he he did some psychic combat, then they're good. They're fine. What's he? I want to ask Leah, what's he like writing now? Like now that so much of the landscape of X-Men has changed, like when you think about Charles Xavier, what do you think about? Well, I'm probably the worst possible person to ask about that because I don't like Charles. <laughs> I pretty much never have. I see him as a villain. I hate him. And I'm sort of begrudgingly coming around to the fact that as soon as one of my peers in the ex office um, does like kind of a, a meteor story with him in the current comics, then I'm, I'm going to be forced to like him again because I this has been historically true of of characters that I didn't like until more recently my my peers were writing them and I was like all right I guess I gotta (laughs) I gotta enjoy Quentin Quire and Wolverine a hell of a lot more than I did (laughs) are you not a Quentin you have like the world's biggest Quentin Quire on the line with you right now so (laughs) the biggest fan so is that I I know but I I, and I feel like Jay is definitely going to sympathize with this experience. There are things that you can like about a character that are implicit and, and not canonical yet. So you connect the dots based on what the possibilities of somebody could be without necessarily choosing to include their character moments you like less, such as um, 
instigating a riot, <laughs> you know, and, and like not even a righteous riot, but like, I'm going to hurt some school kids. Uh, and cause like there are good riots and bad riots, obviously. Um, right. so I, I had enjoyed other interpretations of choir without in, enjoying his like canonical appearances on the page before this point until um, I saw his brand of like arrogance and, and toxic masculinity contrasted through Ben Percy's interpretation of like Wolverine trying to set him straight and, and make him <laughs> of a little shit. And like, here's what non-toxic masculinity looks like. And so it got this kind of like twofold, uh, you know, two birds with one stone thing being Ben Percy as a writer where I guess I got to like both of these characters a whole lot more now. So like, I'm, I'm still at that point where I don't like Charles um, and I, I don't trust him. And it's for me, it's only a matter of time until like, one of the people that I'm working with in the X office does this story that is going to change my mind. And then I'm going to have to be forced to start liking Charles for the first time in my life. Uh, I'm trying really hard not to go on into a whole Quentin apologist diatribe here right now, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, he's, a, he's a Phoenix like um, avatar. He's, he's, he's been, he's still an asshole when he has one, but specifically <laughs> like I grew up in South, South, South central West coast, Florida, punk culture in the 90s um if that sounds like an oxymoron to you it's because it basically is and but it 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 breeds and it creates a very very specific type of frustrated disenfranchisement that in terms of quentin's worst arcs like that felt like what would have happened if half of my peers in high school got superpowers right he's not you know he's he he screws up he's awful he's he's legitimately horrible but he's such a believable and recognizable horrible to me at that point that i can't help but love him and then and he just gets you know better and better in that and he's he's very much like the person who wants to push back against things without having the responsibility of follow-up ever which is is also pretty great but the thing that really cemented it for me, him for me as, as a favorite actually came this week because um, someone has been posting, I'm blanking on their name and I feel like an asshole. They have a podcast. Um, I will find it. I will give it to you so you can link to it. But um, has, has been posting cross-casting between Community, which is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and X-Men. And people do that and I, I inevitably just nitpick it and hate it. And I love this one. Um, I don't agree with all of it, but the reasoning is really smart. But he came up with the most absolutely spot on thing I've ever seen, which is that Quentin is Britta Perry. Oh, I was going to say that. And I was going to say that. And, and it was just this moment of, yeah, this just, this just, this completes both characters in ways that they weren't before in my head. In I was going to say Britta because as soon as you said, like, uh, cross casting community, I thought of the one character in community that I like the least. <laughs> it's Britta. <laughs> I was like, oh, that tracks. What is it? Is it the way that she can like weaponize discourse just to be the person who's most right? Is that what it is? Is that where you? Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that is immediately the the moment that I pictured in my head. I 
I can accept racism, but I draw the line at animal cruelty. You can accept racism? Yeah. <laughs> what about Xavier? Like, I know that this is jumping ahead in your podcast, Jay, but like, how do you read like the, the Hickman era Xavier? Um, sporadically and mostly in long dose catch-ups. Oh, so okay. <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am not as fully caught up on the modern era as I should be just because with because everything because 2020 mm, right, right. <laughs> so, i i've actually just been catching up myself too jay <laughs> yeah i found that my ability to follow monthly serials right now is about nil mm. so i'm just i basically am doing the i buy everything but i'm doing the equivalent of trade trade waiting to read i guess i guess i'm asking because when i look at these old stories as an adult like when you're no longer like well that's the professor and the professor is right and now when you're an adult and it's like wait that's just an old man who's mad that his kids are superseding him which is like is in dark phoenix right it's not just phoenix who says it like he is um explicitly upset that cyclops is leading the team in a way that he would not be leading it right and there is kind of a grasp of like well i'm in charge and like watch me sacrifice all of you without asking permission um that i guess becomes the seed of the way that future adaptations of the dark phoenix story kind of overdo um and i like that it's here um, without ever actually getting properly digested, really. is like, this is just like a, a lonely man who is exerting whatever power he can over these people. Yeah. Which I find interesting. <laughs> I, I think that's the root of my ultimate distaste for Xavier and why I've never trusted him. Like, I didn't get exposed to comics until I was in college too, Jay, like you. Um, and it was because I started living with somebody who was a big comics fan and... I was ignorant up to that point, and I thought the comics had only been for boys. So when I expressed this to her, she was just like, shut the fuck up and slapped a <laughs> copy of Watchmen down on my desk. And that's like my actual comics origin story. Um, so my exposure to Charles through the comics was as somebody who, you know, I, I do not trust his authority. It is not something that I have seen him I had not seen him earn on the page and I was seeing him recruit Scott Summers to be like a child soldier after Scott had gone through this you know traumatizing ordeal with his family being torn apart and I I, I think that what you're saying as to this like sad old man who was embittered about the loss of power and and students kind of overtaking uh, their own agency away from him and that kind of thing. I think that really resonates as to the way that I, I feel about him in general. Honestly, I think that reflects a lot of the way I see recent Charles Xavier in comics too, is that he's that character who's now got, you know, the, the body equivalent of a midlife crisis car. And right. <laughs> is 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 being edgy and cool, but in the ways that you define edgy and cool when you're someone who's had institutional power for an incredibly long time. <laughs> I love that because the body that you're talking about is this incredibly svelte twink body with a big old helmet. Like <laughs> Well, that he got from the character who is specifically the over the top engineered to be hot and badass character. <laughs> And, yeah, I, and he's also, I mean, like you talked about early Xavier and his creepiness. And one of the things that for, for me, um, and it's it's one of those, it happens in a mini series that's off to the side of main continuity. 
but having read the X-Men Micronauts crossover was really, I mean, I think Xavier is a really interesting character, but the stuff that happened on page in that was such an absolute hard line for me to that, that like, there's always a backbeat and like the first note of talking about anything that he does is, and he shouldn't be around children. Like it, it feels like trying to yeah. do Scott Lobdell's work. Like there's such a big disclaimer that's front center and neon that it colors everything. Which goes back to X-Men number one, right? Like X-Men number one has that panel where he's like, Jean is talking and he's like, uh, she can never know. I'm in love with her. And it's yeah. like, so in one the Micronauts <laughs> miniseries, he sexually assaults one of his teenage students. Oh boy. Like psychically, but very explicitly. Which is, I mean, a beat that the comics never really, I mean, even during Onslaught, that X-Men number one beat came back again. Yeah. So it, it comes in and out. It, he's a, He's oh, trouble. where he's attracted to like Teen Jane. Teen yeah, Jane. he he yeah. shows her that memory. Onslaught shows her that memory yeah. as like a clue to his identity. Um, I can remember reading that specific panel as a kid and thinking, "This is a trick." Xavier didn't think yeah, this. Definitely like, did. <laughs> yeah, it was not a trick. They should they should have just basically agreed by popular consensus to forget that the same way they forgot like the giraffe coming through the window to eat their ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so wait so i will say um i don't like i prefer old man xavier that explicitly is like eh, kind of shitty he's the one in charge but like eh. but that students have kind of like gone on to do better things then i prefer the current xavier cult leader who is like uh, he eh. He feels too much like a god that they're all listening to now. And I don't, I, I can't tell if the characters are also, like, it doesn't. But you're not know. caught up, right? <laughs> I'm only, I, I read all of, like, the House of X, Powers of X. I read New Mutants. Um, I haven't read your X Factor yet, but it is on my list. I've been getting the, tra I work at a bookstore, so I get the trades. Um, I'm reading more Marauders right now. Okay. And I've liked I, that. I disagree with the, um, current X-Men, they're, they're not a cult. Krakoa <laughs> is not a cult and they're not bad guys. And I, I definitely vehemently disagree with that assessment, but I'll, I, I, Xavier is Xavier to me. And I, I think that Jay's interpretation of like a midlife crisis, you know, his fancy sports car twink body is, is like spot on to me still. Um, so it's, it's not a radical departure from the existing Charles. He's just in a shiny new body. <laughs> I get a version of, I've been watching Hannibal. I mean, we've gone far afield, but I've been watching, <laughs> I've been watching Hannibal and I get Honestly, a version of like the Will Graham thing where it's like, what if you tried it the way the other guy has been saying all this time? Like there is like, to me, honestly, Krakoa is so much like what Magneto has been describing for so long. Yeah that it does feel like Xavier's like, well, I'm going to give it a go, you know? <laughs> so. Absolutely. Yeah. Like uh, the biggest radical departure from previous X-Men compared to what we're doing now is the fact that like the marginalization metaphor is something we're striving to remove. And we are showing people who are no longer oppressed and are allowed 
um, to evolve and develop and to flourish for the first time without the pressure of prejudice coming down on them because they have created a safe space for their community and they are working on community building. And to me, this is like a very radical and empowering thing that we're doing that Charles is not controlling. He He's a facilitator for it, but it's Moira who is really the catalyst for this, as well as like Magneto and Emma Frost and kind of the other big figures and in, in everything that's going on. Um, but Charles is he's not a puppet master um, and, and he could easily be taken out <laughs> if he were to stand in the way of progress at this current time. I'm going to step in really quickly and say the arc that I really wish had informed the way he developed over time. I've been reading early and mid nineties stuff again, just for the podcast and the way Nisseza in particular was writing him in the, in the nineties where he is really coming to terms with the idea that his students are growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And having to kind of forge an independent identity. Yeah. Really yeah. neat. Like he is, he becomes a great point of view character really for the first time there. And I really wish they'd run with that more. I really like that, that, that issue where he's got the use of his legs for a bit and he's saying right. goodbye. Yeah, to that Jubilee. Jubilee. That's so beautiful. And even, even the, again, again, it's my story. I love executioner song so much. Like <laughs> if Same. he had died in that, if he had died in that, it's actually not a bad ending for him. Sort of like give him the full Martin Luther King ending and let's see what comes next. It really is like that speech he gives at that rally is such a summative moment for both like what he believes and the limitations of what he believes. Yeah. And having it blossom from there, I think is definitely he has trouble letting go, which I appreciate as a character trait. But um, anyway, we've gone so far, but I think that's, <laughs> I think that's already here, right? Even in these right. brief moments of like, I'm going to throw you all away to save Jean and be like, pardon me? You know, <laughs> I would have liked the chance to say no, even though I wouldn't have, right? Yeah, right. yeah you yes. asked before doing that. That's... <laughs> yeah, you asked before putting everyone's life that's on the line. Basic laboratorial um, etiquette. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And like he has, he could have gone into their minds and been like, "Hey, there's this thing. Can we call this? Like, what are what are your all your thoughts?" Like he he has that power where he could have quickly gone into any of their minds to be like, "Hey, just found this like loophole. What do we think?" Right, and he just um, does. I like that. Yeah. It's like a choice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I do, and I I I love all of the action on the moon. I love seeing the Imperial Guard is such a like. I mean, clearly they're integral to this because they need to be the ones to fight, but it's such a weird like group of characters to bring into a kid's cartoon, uh, and I just love them. I mean, we got action figures of Gladiator, and ooh, one of you is going to remember the robot dude. I can't remember the green robot dude that has a little robot dude inside of him. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but we got like we even got action figures of those guys, and I remember thinking how cool that was that, like, oh, I had Imperial Guard action. I was always bummed we never got a Lalandra. Uh, but like, I don't know. I always think of how specific, like, you know what I mean? Like we, we didn't have an Avengers cartoon, but we had like the Imperial Guard on a cart in a cartoon, you know? Um, but so we get the fight. This is again, where I really like Rogue being there. Rogue does like a lot of the fighting on the moon, uh, which makes sense because she can punch the hardest, right? Like she's the one on the team that can go blow for blow with Gladiator and no one else really can. 
Um, and I just like, you know, the team gets broken up a little bit. I, I just, these action scenes mixed with like their quippy dialogue really work for me. Uh, I don't know what all of you all think though. Yeah. Agreed. I think it's, I think it's really well staged. I think this arc in general just has some of, some of the strongest fight choreography and, and pacing in the series. Jay, can I ask, because you're like the world's foremost expert and I'll never get this chance again. How, can you tell me in a way that makes sense how Gladiator's powers work? <laughs> uh, yeah, they're, basically he has Superman's power set and its efficacy is relative to his confidence. Right. So how does that work? So he just really has to go in, he has to like himself up before every fight? Like how yeah, does this? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. <laughs> Because I always, I remember that issue where he's fighting Cannonball in the, the Madurera era, Madurera era, is that, <laughs> um, and it like comes down to his confidence level. So yeah. like the blustery comments he's making throughout the episode are actually like part of how his fighting style works, right? Is that right? Basically, yeah. It's amazing. I had no idea. So I in, in theory, the way Superman. you take him out is to be really mean to him. Right. Yeah. You have to like neg him to death. Right. <laughs> Or you have to convince him that he's fighting someone more powerful than he is, because if he believes that, it'll basically be the case. Also, a strong reasoning uh, for why Rogue is is the best possible person to fight him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You look literally were making the case there, Jay. <laughs> That's I. I really just thought he was Superman. I thought he was Space Superman with a mohawk short. He's, That's he's just what Space I Superman, used. but like with the confidence sliding scale. Hmm. So we have the fight. I don't know if anyone. Leah, what do you think of the the battle, the way it's like all done? Uh, I agree that it's expertly staged. I think it's super fun. And I like that now um, we're at the point where we're scaling back up after revisiting Jean Grey's childhood home. Now we're like on the moon and things yeah. getting bigger and badder. And it just kind of adds to how epic this feels. Yeah, I yeah, I also, uh, I think it's a weird choice. I mean, I, I get it, but it's weird that we go back to Jean Grey's Marvel Girl costume, but we don't go back to like any other costumes. Like the, I know that that's the whole point, but in the, I remember watching this thinking, oh, she's going to put on, she'll just put on her outfit that she wore most of the cartoon because that's the outfit, the cart, the context of the cartoon, that's her outfit. Uh, but I like that she goes into her Marvel Girl, like dress outfit, um, it's very weird to see in the cartoon because it doesn't fit their style. But of course, it, it feels makes sense. so like quaint. Yeah. So the first many <laughs> scenes she's in it too, the proportions of her face as drawn around the mask are really bizarre. <laughs> it, goes, it goes away later and it's, it's fine later, but at first it's, it's just, it's, it, it just adds, adds a layer of, of kind of strange grotesquery to it. What is the logic in the comic for this? Cause here she says it's how he knew her. Cyclops knew her, which is not true. Like she had the Marvel Girl outfit that they all wore back in the day. Um, so, what like, was... what is this? Just what she was wearing before she was Phoenix? Is that what it was? No, it was before she was Phoenix. She was just wearing an evening gown. But um, she was. It was. It was that she. Some of it was a combination of of they had to get or she had to get new clothes out of the the Shiar's costume machine. Oh, but it right. was basically that she wanted to go back to what she felt like was the most her defined mer- version of Marvel Girl. Uh, and the dress version of the costume is specifically from the first part where they have differentiated costumes. Right, right. So this is her first this is her first foray foray into individual identity as an X-Man. 
wait, I'm going to read you. I just flipped to the page in the comic books. I have it right here. Um, he asks her, Stytop says, you're dressed as Marvel Girl. Why? And she says, I'm not sure. Nostalgia, pride. I started as Marvel Girl, and that's how I'll finish. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is a really good, that's like a, a concise, very good. I mean, there's a bajillion dialogue bubbles after that, but that's her reasoning. And I think it's a really good reasoning i don't know i it just doesn't it, translate to the show because she hasn't been marvel girl in the show right. but right. she's like I, never to be fair there. i really hate the i love a lot of jim lee designs i particularly dislike the jean gray one and i hate it even more with the ponytail <laughs> God, i'm so glad there's someone else everyone talks about how good that costume is and i I, oh. I can't see it i don't get it i don't understand what it's like trying to say it Red as like nude a lot of the time in the same way the saber tooth costume. That's in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about that. It feels like a way to make um, you know, just having her like puss and boots out uh child <laughs> friendly and and like side boob action too. It definitely feels like here's what we can do to to sex up a, a Saturday morning children's cartoon. Is that oh, all see, it, it is? Feels, it feels generic to me. It feels like someone was like, "What? what is the combined aesthetic of this? Let's make the most red shirt version of that costume. Yeah, I, I don't. And I really don't understand the ponytail. Because the beige thing, the beige thing only happens as a coloring error. So yeah. it's at least not I, supposed to be. But it's 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 a. It's, yeah, but it's, even it's the Jim Lee comic. comic, I remember looking at the Jim Lee comic and being like, which part of this is clothes and which part of this is skin? I often found that there, there's a couple of X-Men, um, like Nightcrawler and Mystique. Um, I often, as a kid, had trouble. Like, I think I thought Nightcrawler was mostly naked except for his red V um, until I realized he's not. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Uh, Sabretooth was the one for me where it's like, is this guy just wearing like the Borat bathing yeah. suit? <laughs> I will say though I, I as a baby gay I loved the green dress but now as an adult I hate the green oh, dress I like it I like I it. it I hate it it's so classic I just love the simplicity of it I love any costume that given two days notice I could cosplay it and I feel like <laughs> this is that <laughs> like I I, I think that for me, the nostalgia always wins, though. Like, that 90s era Jim Lee, like, all of them, even, like, Psylocke, who's, like, that bikini is ridiculous. Like, I love all of those. Those are the looks for me. Like, those are the, like, X, what I think of when I think of the X-Men looks. And clearly, it has a lot to do with this cartoon as well, because they use all those costumes. I guess that's why this reads weird, is it's, like, nostalgia for something the show has never shown us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But I, I think, again, the show has confidence in these nerdy children watching this cartoon that one, they'll either blow past it and be like, okay, sure. Or two, be like, that is the costume she wore in the comics forever. Right. You know what I mean? This show has this problem in general where like the continuity is unclear. Like it's very clear in the first episode with Magneto, it's the first time they've fought him, but then it becomes established. There definitely was like the original five X-Men and Iceman was there. And it's like, then what were they doing for all those years? <laughs> sort of an open question because they've never fought a Sentinel. They never fought Magneto. They were just kind of around. Well, and in Days of Future Past, the version in the cartoon, um, when Bishop saying that he doesn't know who assassinated Professor, uh, Jean Grey references Dark Phoenix, but this is season two of the cartoon and Dark Phoenix doesn't oh, happen to air. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> because she says like Sky Cyclops is like, oh, it could never be you, Jean. And she's like, you forget about my dark days that I had. And like 
clearly is alluding to Dark Phoenix. What the fuck else would you be alluding to? <laughs> um, so I think they're probably, I mean, I'm willing to forgive that because it, you know, I'm sure they had to write these scripts very quickly and didn't know how long the cartoon would actually last. Because, uh, like, the one time I interviewed the showrunners, um, not on this podcast that we're going to, um, they definitely said they didn't know, they didn't think the cartoon would last. Like, no one had confidence in it, but then it blew up so quickly. So, uh, so we get to the end. Uh, I, hands up, I feel like I'm, I'm being very negative, but I, hands up, I like this, the difference in the ending here. I think it works. I think it works for this cartoon. I don't know that it's better, but I like it. I still like it, and I think it really works here in the cartoon that, like, sure, Jean is dead, but we're going to bring her back to life right away because we're not going to dick around, and Phoenix will leave her. I like they all just hold hands. They have this cute moment. I like it. What do you What do you all think? Yeah, I like it. I think it's I think it's perfect in terms of adaptation. It's taking something that originally was very specific to its context and audience, turning it into something else that's specific to its co- context and audience, but keeps the spirit of the story in really good ways. There's also just canonical precedent for the Phoenix being like, "Yeah, my host is dead. I'm going to take care of that," because <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> happened with Rachel before. Yeah. I, that's definitely my pretty much exact sentiment too. I, I think that it's a really faithful adaptation that stays true to kind of the core of the comics in terms of what its, its goals were. Um, but it, it is an appropriate adaptation in, in the changes that it needed to make for the medium. Uh, Yeah. I, I actually think some of the choices are better. Like I actually, I prefer Jean's death being via the cruiser's weapons instead of just this random gun she runs yeah, into. It's, it's on... much neater. Yeah, it's and it's like more epic, right? Like to have her train the guns of a whole starship on her body. Like that's cool. Um, I mean, the other risk is they just kind of killed, I'm making air quotes, but she kind of dies at the end of the regular Phoenix saga on the cartoon. She goes into the sun and is gone. So it'd be a lot to ask your audience to literally have her die within five episodes twice. So <laughs> you got to wrap it up. And it speaks to what Jay was saying about found family, that they all like give this part of their life force to bring her back, um, which is like a cute beat that obviously never ends up mattering. And I don't really understand what that means. Does that mean like you live less time where you just feel tired for a while? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But it's very pretty. I like seeing Wolverine and Cyclops holding hands. Like, it's very cute. (laughs) And then it's so funny. I really thought the same thing when I was watching it, like, this time. I was like, what does this actually mean? Do they have, like, one year taken off their life? Or they just cough sometimes? Is this, like, a donating kidney thing where basically you just have to be careful about how much much you drink? Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful about their protein intake. Yeah. All right, so now that we're at the end, um, we're going to say our favorite scene. Anthony, what's your favorite scene? Oh, we didn't even talk about it, but it's the scene where Gene says, I think to me is a line that is like my favorite Gene Grey line ever, which is, it's the thought that counts. I think that's the best, the best line Claremont ever wrote. Um, and I love it here where she's like saying goodbye to Cyclops in that little alcove. Uh, that's my favorite. I was about to be like, you need to give me context because I don't remember her saying that. Yeah, uh, says, like, we don't have time. And she says, you don't have to say it. It's the thought that counts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Leah? I think that my favorite scene overall is probably 
the last fight scene in the Hellfire Club um, because it's so ridiculous and so fun and we get so many good puns and one-liners um, that it, it it sets up the horror of the way that episode <laughs> ends with Mastermind <laughs> and Dark Phoenix. Um, I think it sets it up so nicely at, and it's so enjoyable at the same time. Okay. I love, I mean, we talked about this when we were talking about it, but at the beginning of part three, Beast's just very understated. Oh dear. <laughs> like it's, it's such, it's so mild, but it's, it's such a good bit of framing. He's a great voice actor. Oh God, he is. Yeah. He is. I, I, I think he, he doesn't get called out, out for it, but for me with the, this series, he's hands down MVP. I don't remember his name, but he's in, he was on that, um, what was that? Uh, Sinbad show that like Hercules Sinbad this TV show. Story, or am I misremembering? I may be mis- misremembering. Let me. Ch- I, I will. Okay. I'll check IMDb real quick. Um, and he's the he's the truck driver that picks up Rogue in the first X Men car and X Men. Really? Yeah, that's him. Um, where huh. she like, gets in the truck and there's that that burly fella. That's yeah. Beast. <laughs> huh. Hmm. Anthony, I feel like you've given me a lot of new information during this podcast. <laughs> um yeah i think uh my leah i'm same with you it's the second longer in longer inner circle fight because it's it i think the music is also really good during that fight scene and like the puns are good it's fun to watch i don't know i it's one of my favorite the moon would be a second a close second but like those are two of my favorite fight scenes in the entire run of the cartoon oh same yeah like, I think of them the moon scene too. I, I think it has a lot to do with how, obviously, the outfits in, yeah. <laughs> in both of these scenes are are just totally over the top and and like campy and so fun. Um, and to see people like, you know, WWE style brawling <laughs> and and tearing apart their surroundings while quipping at each other. Oh, it's the best. Yeah, as they rip off Donald Pierce's arm. Over and over. <laughs> I looked it up, guys, and it's uh, George Buza who plays a really disproportionately large number of bikers in his voice credits, and also oh, Santa yeah. a lot. Santa? Yeah. So I guess he's the exact midpoint between Santa and bikers. Yeah, he's got like a he's got like a beautiful bear energy. I love him. <laughs> uh, so now we're gonna grade the arc. Uh, Jay, what grade do you give it? I. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a solid A. For right. yeah, I, I think it it nails adaptation. It works really well with the resources it has. There are points where it's a little bit it works a little bit too hard to shoehorn in details from the comics, but they don't really detract from the whole. Okay, uh, Leah. Yeah, I I think that that's a really fair assessment, and I would say the same like A. Okay. Uh, Anthony. Oh, too much consensus. I completely agree, and for the same reasons, it's like. Where it's weak, I mean, we've talked about the animation being, it is right. what it is, but uh, its weak points are when it does feel like it owes too much to the source text, um, which is not usually a critique I make of this show. Like, the show is very willing to tell its own kind of stories, um, but it's perfect. It is as good as this cartoon ever gets, A, a across the board, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be in agreement. And Anthony, I don't think this happens very often. Nope, never. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't do favorite outfits. 
we haven't we haven't been doing that for the cartoon but oh, sure let's do my favorite apple. my favorite i only want to do this because i love jean's wedding hat that she wears <laughs> the, bowl. <laughs> the bowl on her head yeah that's my favorite <laughs> uh sure uh jay what's what was your favorite outfit oh i absolutely lalandra's pink cape <laughs> uh Leia. i think is her name oracle so the lady uh, in the Imperial Guard, who yeah. is in the pink and purple with all the studs. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> I love a good fashion pauldron. <laughs> I might go with uh, Jean's updated Black Queen outfit that has the blue tights instead of the oh. legs showing. I, I kind of like the addition of the blue tights. I don't know. It, I, it makes it less like... I mean, it's still bondage year, right? But it's, it makes it less... I feel like it makes it look like, okay, we're not like... Let's exploit it. Yeah. Get it to bondage pro wrestler territory. Right. Yeah. It's like when, it's like when Colossus suddenly has those blue pants whenever he's not in armor mode. Yeah. Even though. <laughs> um, but okay. So thank you for all for joining us. Thank you all for listening. If you liked the podcast, you can find us on social media at SlayerFestX98. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get podcasts. And if you like us, you can support us on Patreon, which helps keep this podcast going and gives you access to mini episodes and our private Facebook group. If you want to follow me, I am at Ian X Carlos on all social media platforms. Leo, where can everyone find you? Uh, I'm Handax with an E on all social media except Twitter. And there I'm my monster is chic, C-H-I-C. Uh, Jay, where can everyone find you? I am not lasers on Twitter and pretty much use different handles on everything else. So ignore those, except the podcast is always explain the X-Men on Twitter, Tumblr, and pretty much every, every other relevant place. And you can also find us at explain the X-Men.com. Yes. And Anthony. Oh, um, well, we should say that both our guests can also be found on comic book shelves by the time this comes out. Right. Uh, we've got oh. X factor is when is the next issue of X factor? Uh, Oh, this Wednesday, actually, the 26th. 26th. So this so might, it'll be out. This will be, out, be out, out. Oh, the there time. we go. So yeah. we can pick up X Factor number two, which is an amazing kickoff to this run. I can't wait to see what you're doing in that book. I, I know some things that are going to happen. It sounds amazing. <laughs> and, uh, Jay, where can people find you on comic book shelves? Um, so most most recently or upcomingly, depending on when this comes out, um, X-Men Marvel's Snapshot comes out on September 16th, finally delayed from April. I'm very excited that it's finally actually <laughs> happening. You can also find me in the Marvel Universe on the cereal box, um, Thor Metal God cereal. Um, you know, Jay, ever since you, I don't know what was listening, but ever since you mentioned that on our Generation X episode, I have been getting targeted ads for that specific Thor cereal box series like ever since you said it it's like <laughs> the algorithm we're listening <laughs> and also because we were interacting on twitter true true it could be that and i've i've um, posted i've posted a lot of links to it <laughs> um yeah thank you all for joining us it was very nice having uh x-men royalty on for this episode including you anthony you dickhead and um <laughs> we will see you all next time bye bye, bye. thanks for having us <laughs>